You're listening to Stephen Fry's Podgrams. With deep thanks, as ever, to the Positive Internet Company. Oh, my Lord, what an unconscionably long time it's been since last I stood in front of this microphone and addressed you all. So I suppose the first thing I should do is get all the apologies and greasy compliments out of the way. As regular tuners into my programmes will know, I usually do start with an apology for the gross length of time it's taken me to come up with a new blessé or podcast. I then, if you remember, I then thank you all profusely for your input, your insight, your, um, as James Joyce would put it, your inwit your argon bite of inwit. And eventually, after all that huffing and puffing and prostrating, I get going. So perhaps you can take it all as read this time. I really am genuinely sorry for the wait. I've just been so damnably busy. And I really am grateful. Your comments and corrections have been magnificent. Now, uh, as far as a little bit of housekeeping is concerned, I ought to say that my site, www.stephenfry.com, will be undergoing a slow transformation into stephenfry.com 2.0. It's in the works, and it will be with you before you can say, before you can say something that takes about two months to say, if I'm perfectly honest. And while we're on the subject of www.stephenfry.com, have you ever wondered why we say www? I mean... In England, that is, where that letter is W, i.e. three syllables. I mean, World Wide Web is three syllables. So WWW is nine syllables. It's three times longer to say WWW than it is to say World Wide Web. In the early days, around about 94, I remember it was quite common to call it W3. You would say W3 dot, you know, stephenfry.com or whatever. Uh, but even that's four syllables. So what's wrong with saying World Wide Web? And while I'm on the subject of this kind of thing, I've expatiated on this head before, but I'll do it again. .co.uk. Gosh, that drives me mad. I wrote an article about it in my Guardian column, oh, I suppose back in November. And uh, people tried to give me explanations as to why it's .co.uk and as to why it's a perfectly reasonable thing and it's nobody's fault, but I still think it's bloody stupid. Italy is .it, Germany is .de, France is .fr, South Africa is .za... Every country gets just dot plus its country code. We have to go dot co dot uk. Why can't we go dot uk? Why is there no website that I know of which is wonderproducts dot uk? Mm? 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 Just drives me crazy. All those hours I have spent, if you add them up, typing dot c o, an extra three keystrokes that I could well have done without in my life, plus all that breath I've expended saying www. I'm doing it now. www. Oh, yes, in the Netherlands, it's vey, vey, vey. Not over here, though, as Tony Hancock used to say. Maybe maybe the answer is to say wuh, 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 Actually, I quite like that. Wuh, wuh, wuh. Let's do that. From now on, it's wuh, wuh, wuh. Agreed? Anyway, revenons à nos moutons, as they say in France. What shall we talk about? Well, my mind has been revolving lately on the nature of journalism. Oh, no, Lord, please, anything but that. Surely there's enough pain in the world without talking about journalism. Well, actually, I don't really mean journalism. I mean commentary and opinion. And really, that's the problem with newspapers, isn't it? They don't really mean journalism. They mean commentary and opinion. 
I want it understood from the outset that whatever I say about journalists, whatever I say about the trade of journalism, about the trade of opinion, whether in newspapers or blogging, I obviously apply to myself. It would be ridiculous not to, because here I am discoursing into a microphone and therefore as guilty as anyone, really. Many, many, many years ago, before most of you were born, I used to write a regular Friday column in the Daily Telegraph newspaper here in Britain. I enjoyed it. There was no rules to what I had to write on. Nothing prescribed, nothing proscribed. Um, I could write about the death of Freddie Mercury, the imbecility of astrology, the stupidity of shower gel bottle designers. It didn't really matter. All was, all was grist to my mill. It's a ridiculous thing to entrust someone with all those column inches and all that space once a week. It's bound to go to your head. It's bound to taint your soul. I'm sorry to sound theological about it, but that's really how I felt. And that's really why I stopped, because in the end, no matter how good you try and be and how honest and how rational, you start to believe that people should listen to you. You start to believe that your opinion is more important than anybody else's. You start to believe that... Your emotional responses to the annoyances of life are of value and you start to get very lazy. You stop genuinely inspecting your own heart. You stop genuinely making rational, considered points. And it's between those two extremes that essayism should exist. Somewhere there is the marvellous rational expedition uh, that you take in which argument and example and experience are adduced and there is the subjective journey you take as well, where memory and experience of a different kind are used to forge the essay. And the best journalists manage to tread the path between or to choose one or other's style according to their subject matter. The problem with the daily or weekly column is, well, emotion is so much more easily accessed than reason, isn't it? And we fall into the traps I call the first trap the milkman's cheery whistle. Most of you will be too young or too not British to know that there was once a regular milk delivery made to most households in the United Kingdom. It started with a horse-drawn cart um, with churns that were left on the doorstep, and at its height it was little electric vans that buzzed around the streets of Britain, leaving milk and goodness knows what else by the end, eggs and orange juice and yoghurt and so forth. I suppose the profession reached its height of respectability and glamour when uh, Benny Hill came out with Ernie. His name was Ernie, and he drove the fastest milk cart in the West. Anyway, what's this got to do with journalism? Well, it's the syndrome. It's the milkman's cheery whistle. That's the point. When you run out of ideas for an article, it's very easy to cast your mind around for some nostalgic regret, some piece of cultural observation that you have made that shows your acuity and your connection to the culture. And the cheapest and most obvious, to the point of cliché of these, is to regret the passing of the milkman's cheery whistle. Every morning as he walked up the path to your doorstep, clanking his bottles beside him, the milkman would whistle. And in today's Britain, isn't it a pity that the whistle has gone out. I don't know what young people do now. I think they attach themselves to their iPods and they listen to their rapular music while they smack themselves with heroin and knife each other in the guts. But the whistle seems to have gone out of the world, and uh, I, for one, regret that. I expect you remember, as I do, the marvellous Lauren Bacall uh, in To Have and To Have Not, her first film with Humphrey Bogart, who was to become her husband, of course, 
saying, Steve, you know how to whistle, don't you? You just put your lips together and blow. Whistling was part of the culture throughout the 30s and 40s and 50s and subsequent 60s and then, of course, 70s, but slowly... Slowly, other considerations seem to push the whistle out of the forefront of British cultural life, and I think that's a great shame, because with it went went something else, went a kind of friendliness, went a kind of attitude, went a, a, a kind of neighbourliness, a, a kind of connection one with the other. Would it be fanciful to suggest that perhaps you could only whistle a melody, and that it's melody? that's gone out of British life. The music no longer has melody. Maybe society no longer has melody either. No longer the kind of tunefulness with which one can respond to the other. Well, that's perhaps the subject for another article. But let's return to this idea of the whistle. The whistle was the silken thread, if you like, that knitted together, if silken threads can be said to knit, uh, British life. And with that whistle came duty, honour, service, responsibility, family. Now, if you want that kind of thing, well, you can just whistle for it. And there you are. Your article is more or less written with a neat little circular ending by using the phrase, you can just whistle for it, sort of pinching the loaf, as it were, and signing off. Those sorts of article are harmless enough, I suppose. That's trap one, going off into the sentimental, the regretful, the nostalgic. Trap two is for anger to take the upper hand, and that's the easiest one of all. Articles with anger in them write themselves. It doesn't matter whether you've been kept waiting in a queue in the supermarket and you're venting your spleen on old people and the way they take money out of purses, or whether it's traffic wardens or queues in cinemas or airports. It doesn't matter how banal and obvious it is, just a bit of fury will take you a long, long way, and the article gets itself written. And, of course, for journalism, you could also put in stand-up comedy, which more or less is the 21st century's equivalent of journalism and is as guilty of being obvious and banal and cheap and finding the shortest distance between two laughs as journalism is. And I have been guilty of all these things. And the reason I mention them is that I'm about to be guilty of them all over again, because I have something of a rant coming on. I have a fury that's been building up inside me for some months now, and I find I have no way of letting it out except through the vehicle of this podgram. It faintly reminds me of that legend of King Midas, you know, the one who had the golden touch, the king of Phrygia, I think he was. He was asked to judge in the musical competition between Apollo and Marcius, the competition that involved the playing of the cursed flute of Athena. And anyway, as you probably know, Apollo won, because after all, he was a god. But Midas dared to suggest that he thought Marcius was a better player. And uh, Apollo was furious. He killed Marcius for presuming even to go in competition with him. And he called Midas an ass, and to prove it, he touched him on the head and couple of donkey's ears sprouted out. Poor old Midas, shamed right down to his socks. Nobody knew that he had these ass's ears because he wore a cap, but one person was bound to find out, and that was his barber. So Midas bade him keep the secret. But this is my point. When something bubbles inside you, you have to get it out. This podgram for me is part of getting it all out, and for Midas' barber, it was all about digging a hole in the ground and shouting into it, Midas has ass's ears, and finally being able to rest and to sleep, he'd got it out. As you probably know, reeds grew up in that ground, and they whispered it to the trees, Midas has ass's ears, which I don't know if in Greek has quite so many susurrating s's, but anyway, Midas has ass's ears went from the trees to the birds, and from the birds to the mortals who understood birds, and there were a few around then, and it got back to the ears, the ass's ears of Midas, who chopped the head off his barber and then, according to some versions of the myth, killed himself. 
I've always loved Greek myths. I grew up adoring them, and I adore them to this day. And it's surprising how often they have something to say to us and how often one has recourse to quoting them in order to make sense of one's present predicaments. And my present predicament is that I want to dig a hole in the ground and yell my rant. Only, of course, I'm not so much digging a hole in the ground as broadcasting a podgram. And what makes this so much more unforgivable is that the very nature of the rant is perhaps the grossest and most unforgivable journalistic cliché of them all, and that is a moan against what might be considered political correctness. I forgive myself by saying it's not precisely political correctness that is the target of my rant so much as that strange nebulous world of safety and compliance that seems to be binding us all in hoops of steel at the moment. Nonetheless, it's very naughty of me even to think about wasting your time with a moan of this nature. Yet I can't help it. I am Midas's barber, and it must be done. So, I hope you'll forgive me. Now, where to begin? Well, a friend of mine has directed a number of episodes of a very successful BBC drama called... Mm, well, I won't tell you its real name. I'll say it's called... Spies, and it's immensely popular, and it's gone into its, oh, I don't know, sixth, seventh, eighth series, or season, as we like to say in the American fashion now. And it's a jolly romp of a show, I have to confess. I have something of a weakness for it, and if I'm on a series of long journeys, have to travel by aeroplane or boat or something, I, I don't mind slamming a few DVDs of it into my computer, and it will while away the time very happily indeed. It's a fine series, jolly well made. It's preposterous, of course it is. Uh, it's nothing like real life spying. Uh, if it were, it would be very dull. So there are lots of bombs going off and all kinds of uh, hot exchanges of love and all the rest of it between the various agents in the field and all kinds of enmity between the CIA and the MI5 and the MI6 and all the rest of it. It's, it's you know, harmless, dramatic television, but pretty jolly successful, as I say. Most of the episodes involve bombs going off somewhere in London and someone having to save it. So there's a lot of driving around, therefore, a great deal of high-speed pursuit, as I believe it's called. And naturally, there's a lot of communication between the base, where Harry Pierce, who runs it all, played by the splendid Colin Firth, whom you'll remember as a young lad in Equus, I dare say, and on the double-deckers, if you're my generation. He has to communicate with them, they have to communicate with him and with each other, and it's the modern world. Information, data exchange, 3G, Bluetooth, Wi-Fi, they've just got to be in touch at all times to save civilization. Um, except when they're driving, of course. When they're driving, they can't use the phone. When they're driving, they have to have their seatbelts done up and they must never use the telephone. They mustn't even use a hands-free telephone. They're entirely welcome to kill each other in cold blood. They're entitled to betray their country on screen. They're entitled to behave badly to their wives and their children. They're entitled to eat unhealthy foods. But they are not entitled to use a telephone in the car which real people in an emergency would do. Yes, I know it happens to be illegal, but it's also illegal to shoot people in the face. But they shoot people in the face, and nobody stops them doing that. But there is a man, there are a series of men and women, whose whole job is to stop you from having people filmed in cars, not wearing seatbelts or making phone calls. 
It's called compliance. Compliance with what? Compliance with being an asshole. Compliance with stupidity. Compliance with making this country a shithole. I cannot believe that anybody would allow this to happen. I cannot believe that they wouldn't just say, no, I'm going to film it the way it should be. What is the point of having cars and backgrounds and extras? What's the point of trying to make it realistic? Why not just do it against cardboard? If you're not allowed to do it as it really would be done, because what? Because you're setting a bad example? Well, what kind of example you were setting by betraying your country or shooting people in the face? I don't know where to begin and I don't know where to end. I want to take the people who are responsible for this and I want to squeeze the life out of them. I never want them to get up again. I want them to understand how insane they are. And I have a horrible feeling that they're shaking their head and saying something about how it's wrong to set a bad example to children or something. Whereas shooting people in the face, how many times do I have to say this, apparently isn't setting a bad example to children. Oh my God, I want to explain with fury. And the awful thing is they win. The directors and the producers of the programme comply. Ugh. Why don't they just tell them to fuck off? No, oh, I know I'm distorting the sound and bending the gain needle, but isn't that what this kind of behaviour does? Doesn't it distort the sound of society and bend the needle of comity? Oh, I've gone mad now. But you know what I mean. I mean, surely if ever there were an excuse for distortion and needle-bending anger, this is it. It's insane. It just absolutely drives me crazy. You can hear my voice is now ragged with fury. Oh, hell, oh, double hell, oh, triple hell with an extra side order of hell. What kind of country are we living in? There, you see, you have it. I've done it. I've done it. I've, I've, I've ended an article, as it were, with the phrase, what kind of a country are we living in? This is the problem. This is the sole danger, and I'm spelling soul here, S-O-U-L, the sole danger posed by having one's own space, whether it's column inches or a blog space. It just turns one into a kind of prating imbecile, an overweeningly proud person, like a, like, like a columnist who thinks they have a right to share their fury with the rest of the world. Well, I can't help it. I, um, I have this space and uh, I wanted to dig this hole in the ground and yell. And I have. And I hope it hasn't upset you too much. You possibly disagree. Perhaps you think it's entirely right that people shouldn't be shown on screen without seatbelts and they shouldn't be shown in... <laughs> I don't know, it makes me laugh because I know what the arguments are. They're things like, well, you know, these spies are jolly cool, so children look to them to copy them. Oh, I'm going to have to say, shoot them in the face again. Is that where they look to copy them? I mean, it just doesn't begin to make sense. We are ruled by idiots, ladies and gentlemen. I know, because of the comments you send me, I know how wise and sensible and thoughtful you all are. And you are typical of people. And yet... Oh, yet this country is being run by idiots. Complete idiots. We know they're idiots because they're the kind of people who sat next to us at school. They're no more than that. They're not from some special race of administrators and governors who have inculcated into them a, a greatness and an understanding that we are not privileged to have. Far from it. They are morons. It's such a pity. It's a small thing, I know. It's a very small thing when weighed in the balance of human misery. But... It may just be the small thing that 
tips us all over the edge. It certainly seems to have tipped me over the edge, ladies and gentlemen, and I apologise, so I want to wrap up now. You've given me 20 minutes of your time, which surely must be enough for any kind of a podgram. Thank you very much indeed. I'll try and be back to you with a shorter gap than were between the last ones, unless you're so disgusted by my extreme exhibitionism that you never want to hear from me again. It's been another sincere pleasure to share time with you. It only remains for me to thank you for listening and to wish you the very best. Much love. Bye-bye. You're listening to Stephen Fry for stephenfry.com.